So just a reminder about next Sunday, Back to Church Sunday. Um, the reason that we're doing this is to give you an excuse. How many of you like making excuses? Be honest. It's not my fault, right? So you can blame me and say, this is really uncomfortable, but my pastor wanted me to invite somebody to church, so would you come with me so I don't look like the only person who didn't bring a friend? That's your excuse. A couple times a year, we have events like this that just give you that excuse to say, oh, we're having something special at church. Would you like to join us? It's going to be really casual. We're going to eat outside. We're going to have some games. And the Gustafsons decided that since the bills are doing so well, it would be good to make it kick off Sunday. So if you want to wear your favorite jersey and it's not a bills jersey, you might want to sit downstairs that day. <laughs> but if you want to wear a bills jersey, feel free to do that to church. Uh, be casual, be comfortable. If you want to dress up, you can do that too. And if you wear something other than a Bill's jersey, we love you because God loves you, and that's all okay. I grew up uh, in New Jersey near the Giants and then lived in the, middle, the Midwest, Chicago Bears and Indianapolis Colts. So I've rooted for a lot of teams over the years, and it's okay to do that. But I'm here, and I'm happy to root for the Bills and see them do so well. But that's not what we're here to talk about because it's not game day for the Bills. We're here to talk about God's Word, and I'm so glad that you're here to do that with us. Let's see if you know who this young man is. There was a young man who grew up in England. He was a pastor's kid. He studied theology in the university. He became a Greek and logic professor before being ordained as a priest in the Church of England. He became part of a holy club with other Christians to pray and study the Bible. He spent an hour every day in prayer. He took communion every week. He worked hard on conquering his personal sins. He fasted twice a week, visited prisons, helped the sick and the poor. He even became a missionary, but as he failed miserably, as a missionary, he said, I went to convert, convert others, but who will convert me? On his way back from being a missionary overseas, he came across the passage that we're looking at this morning, Mark chapter 12. And he found himself in verse 34, where Jesus said to a religious leader, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far. In other words, you're really close. It wasn't his knowledge of the Bible. It wasn't giving up worldly things. It wasn't his fasting, his prayers, or all of his kind deeds that saved this young man. It was only by trusting in what Jesus Christ already did for him. It's by God's grace alone that you're saved. It's a gift from God so that none of us can boast or brag about it. That night, John Wesley finally was saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Even with all of his religious background, he realized that he wasn't saved. He was not far from the kingdom, but he wasn't there. So this morning, we're going to see the third in a trio of questions from the Sanhedrin as they are talking to Jesus. They're trying to discredit him. They want to destroy him, ruin his ministry, ruin his reputation, because they are afraid. 
They're afraid of losing their positions, their power. So this Jewish elite group is coming to Jesus, question after question, and Mark presents them to us all together, one after another. Today, it's just a single man who comes with a question. But unlike the others, he came with an open heart, and he was truly looking for the answer. We're continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark, which we started last summer. For those of you that are keeping track and wondering just how long the Gospel of Mark is going to last, it covers Jesus' life, which was 33 years. So if it takes us more than a year, that's okay. We're, we're taking our time to go through this carefully and make sure that we get everything out of it that we can. Mark's Gospel shows Jesus as a man with a mission. He was driven. He had a purpose. He was a man of action. And Mark helps us, the listeners today and the listeners of his day, understand God's heart better, understand just who God is as he revealed himself in Jesus Christ. His statements in the gospel are statements for us to follow, not just to listen to and say, hmm, that's a good thought. He must have been a good man. Or that's nice. I'll put that a plaque on my wall. I want everybody to know that I think like Jesus does. Jesus is calling to follow him, to actively pursue him, to live a life that pleases him and looks like him. So in the second half of the gospel, Mark changes gears, and these last couple of chapters are all focused on the last week of Jesus' life. As he rides into Jerusalem triumphant, presenting himself as the Messiah, and the people recognize him and shout, Hosanna, King of Kings, Son of David. And then he is questioned by people, questioned, 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 and eventually, as we know, he will be put on trial, executed, and then he will rise again. So that's what's happening. That's what's coming up for us. And Jesus knew all that was going to happen. He wasn't surprised by any of these things. So last week, the Sadducees came with a second tricky question. It was about marriage in heaven and about the resurrection. Today, it's a scribe. It's another part of the group of the Sanhedrin with an ultimate question about how do we obey God's laws? Jesus then, after answering the question, turns around and asks them a question. Who is the Messiah? What's his real identity? So as we continue in Mark's gospel, we're in chapter 12. If you want to turn there in your Bible, you can grab one of the pew Bibles in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible at home, you're welcome to take that home with you. Our parallel passages from Matthew, it's Matthew 22 and Luke 20. And in case you didn't notice in your bulletin, there's a note sheet if you like to take notes and jot things down as we're going through. Let's pray before we read God's word. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this day. Thank you for bringing us together to sing your praises. Thank you for Bradley and Hannah leading us in worship that we could shout out the name of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the reason that we're here together today, to glorify the name of Jesus, to lift up his name, and to see from your word how we can follow you. Lord, I just pray that as we listen today, we would be active listeners, that our hearts would be open to hear what you have to say to us, and that we would go away changed, knowing that your word is active and living. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It helps us discern what's right and wrong and what we need to do. Help us, Lord, to be doers and not hearers only. 
We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So we have two different things going on. I'm going to deal with the scribe's question first, and then we're going to read the last couple of verses as we go into that. So Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no one, no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So we have first the scribe's question. This is a little bit different from the last two questions. Instead of a group of people coming to him, it's just one scribe, a single man coming to Jesus to ask him a question after he saw how Jesus answered well. So this man has been listening. He's not there ignoring Jesus' answers. So many of the other questions, they didn't really care what Jesus had to say. They just were trying to trick him. They were trying to trip him up, make him look bad in front of the people. But this man said, he really answered those questions well. I want to hear more. I want to ask him what the ultimate question is. A scribe is part of the Pharisees, and he specifically was someone who studied the law and interpreted the law. He helped the people understand what it means to follow God. How do we understand these laws? How do we apply them to our lives? And while when you think of the law, we often think of the Ten Commandments, but in the Old Testament, the rabbis identified 613 unique laws. 613. Those were all commandments in the five books of Moses. We call that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. There are 365 negative or don't do this laws. God is a God of purpose. You could say there's a, a law for every day of the year if you wanted to memorize them. 365 negative laws. Don't do this. Stay away from this. And then there are 248 positive laws. Do this. This is what it looks like to please God. Do these things. And that totals 613. So a common debate among the scribes, among the Pharisees, was which are the heavier or lighter laws? Trying to keep 613 laws is not an easy thing if you're thinking God is going to dis be displeased with me if I miss even one of them. 
So how do I keep all of them? So they were constantly debating which ones are the most important, which are the heavier of them. So the scribe, impressed again with Jesus' answers, says, which commandment is the most important of all? Matthew makes it sound like the scribe is coming in just like the others, trying to trick him. But Mark sees something different. And again, Peter is the eyewitness who helped Mark understand some of these things. The Holy Spirit was the one who guided Mark as he wrote. But Peter was there saying, this guy was different. And he tells us that, that he came wanting to know the answer. Jesus, which command is the most important of all? And then we see Jesus' response in verses 29 to 31. Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's not an answer, that's a statement. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. I went too far. Okay, so he starts by restating the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. This is the prayer. That's what this word means. Or, I'm sorry, it's Hebrew for to hear. It's a prayer that they would recite in the morning and the evening. And Jewish people today still continue to recite this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Jesus starts out by just reminding them who God is. He is one God. Love him completely, body, spirit, and mind. Love him with all that you are. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Love him with everything. This is one of the positive commands. I think that's interesting that when Jesus said these are the most important commands, they're the positive ones. They're not the don't do this. And unfortunately, sometimes as kids growing up, we think of all of the don't rules, right? Mom and dad have all the don't rules. Don't touch this. Don't do that. Don't run here. Don't make too much noise. Instead of the do rules. And Jesus said it's really all about what you do. You should love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. All of those don'ts fall under this. You don't have to worry about the don'ts because if you're truly loving God with everything and loving your neighbor the same way, you're going to act in a way that pleases God. There are lots of different ways that we use the word love, like I love my mom, I love pumpkin lattes, I appreciate the fall decorations that are out already, I haven't had a pumpkin, actually I have had a pumpkin latte, I was going to say I'm waiting for October, but I haven't, I couldn't, I couldn't resist, I gave in already. I love the bills. It's the same word, but the context is different for each one of them, right? Do you love pumpkin lattes the way you love your mom? Come on, really? Do you love the bills the way you love your spouse or your kids? I hope not. 
I hope your love for them is even greater than football. The Greek word that's used here for love God and love your neighbors is the same way. It's agape. And if you've been around church, you've heard this before. It's the kind of love that God has for us. And he calls us to have that love for him and for others. It's not brotherly love. It's not um, romantic love. It's agape love. It's selfless care. It's concern. It's esteem for another person, holding up someone even more important than yourself. And that's what God calls us to do as we love him. He loves us unconditionally. He loves us without expectation. He's going to keep loving us no matter what. And that's what he's telling us to do. Love God that way and love other people that way. Love God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. In other words, love him with your whole being. The fact that it includes our mind and our strength means that our love should affect the way we think and we act. It's not just the words, right? If you've been in a relationship for any period of time, you know that just saying the words, I love you, don't go as far as doing the words, I love you, right? People say to older couples, and I guess I'm one of those, how did you make it last this long? It's by doing things, right? You love your spouse, so you take out the trash, you empty the dishwasher, you do little things because you think, I should do this. Why should she or he have to do this? No matter what it is, you're just constantly putting the other person first. And that's the kind of, God, of, kind of love that God has towards you. He's thinking about us. He's acting in our best interest. Everything that happens in your life, if you're following God, is because he wants you to know him, to live a life that pleases him, and that is the best way you can live your life. It doesn't mean that everything is going to be perfect, but it means that as you go through life, all of the things that happen to you are going to help you grow in your relationship with him. And they're going to help you grow in your love for other people. Trials, difficulties, illness, even losing loved ones, all of those things God can use if we're saying, my focus is on you, God. I want to please you in this. How do I learn from that? The commands that we're familiar with, the Ten Commandments, fall into two categories. The first four are about loving God. It's a vertical relationship with him who God is. Love the Lord your God. Put no other gods before you. Don't have any graven images. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Have a day of rest to focus and worship God. And then after that, the commands are don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat, don't covet someone else's property. All of those things are about how we deal with the people around us. There are horizontal commandments. And God says, the most important is to love me and to love the people around you. And Jesus combines those really into one thing. He says, the most important commandment, singular, love God and love others. He doesn't separate them. You have to do both of them. The Jewish people thought about their neighbors as 
the people like them, the people around them. And sometimes we think that way too, right? Our neighborhood, the people that are just like us, they're easy to love. But then Jesus clarified that when someone said, but who is my neighbor? And Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, someone who was not Jewish, but saw someone in need, and he helped that person. He used his own money, his own time and effort to care for and provide for that person who needed help. When his own neighbors, his own kind of people, walked right by him thinking he's getting what he deserved. He's lying in a gutter, beat up and bruised. He must have done something wrong. Do we think that when we see somebody who's struggling with a handout, thinking, wow, they must have made some really bad choices in life. They're getting what they deserve. I'm so thankful that God doesn't look at me that way. Every one of us begins life with our handout saying, God, I can't do this on my own. I need you. But we're guilty of that, aren't we? Seeing people who are not doing well and saying they're kind of getting what they, what they had coming to them. God doesn't see us that way. And he calls us to look at people the way he does. See them as people in need of a savior. Blind person leading someone to the one who can give them sight. A beggar who found bread and saying, I want to share that bread with you instead of keeping it all for myself. Jesus called himself the living bread, the living water, and he wants us to share him with other people. Nowhere in the Bible can you find this commandment, love yourself. When this says, love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus didn't say, first you have to really take care of yourself, pamper yourself, love yourself, do everything for yourself, and then you can start thinking about other people. If you can find that verse and passage, please bring it to me because I've never found it. That's modern psychology saying, you're number one. And you know what the Bible calls that? The sin of selfishness. We're all born already thinking about ourselves every minute of the day. If you haven't been around babies as cute as they are, all they think about is themselves, right? I'm hungry, wah! I'm wet, wah! I don't like this cup here, I'll drop it. I'm not gonna do that today because it's still full. But if you watch babies, <clears throat> they'll take their spoon or their sweet potatoes or whatever it is and just, I don't care. Mom and dad say, don't do that, and smile, and they just keep doing it, right? They're testing gravity, they're, they're little scientists, but basically, they just do stuff that they like to do. They're not thinking about anybody else. God put that in us so that we would preserve our lives, right? And that we stay alive by keep doing things to take care of ourselves. Drink, eat, all of the things that we need to do to stay alive. But as we meet God, and we find out that there's someone who loves us even more than ourselves. Do you know that God loves you more than you love yourself? Because he lets bad things happen to you for your good. The Bible compares God to a loving father or a parent who says, there are consequences to what you just did. You need to learn that this is wrong and you need to feel the results of your action. I'm not going to snowplow everything in front of you. 
as some parents like to do, to make your path clear so that you never experience anything uncomfortable. That's setting up our kids for failure, isn't it? We don't put problems in front of our children. We don't make bad things happen to them. But when they do, there are lessons, right? We learn about hot stoves. We learn about traffic by near misses, hopefully, and not the real thing happening. God looks at us, knows that we just want to please ourselves and says, you know what, Mark, that's not going to be good for you. That red Ferrari, it's a bad idea. I have one on my shelf, so that's what I often pick as, as my bad idea, right? I'm 50-something, I'm so that's what I should be wanting now. That's a bad idea, especially in western New York. I'm not going to let you have that because it's only going to get you into trouble. He gives me lots of other good things, and I can enjoy them, and sometimes things that I didn't even ask for. It says, he will give you the things that you don't even know you need. That's how much he loves you. But if it were up to me, I would give myself everything, wouldn't you? We spoil, our, <clears throat> we spoil ourselves. So Jesus is not saying, love yourself, and then start to think about your neighbors. He's saying, think about your neighbors on the same level of the way you think about yourself. You know how you like the biggest piece of chocolate cake? You know how you like the best seat? How you like whatever it is? Give that to somebody else. Let them enjoy it. As parents, we love giving gifts, right? We, we hopefully make that shift to enjoying the giving more than the getting. That's what God is like. He enjoys giving his children good gifts. And he wants us to experience that same joy. Care for other people. Love them the way you care for yourself. Give them more than you have, and you'll experience that joy. And they're going to know your Father in heaven. They're going to see how good he is because you're there showing them what he's like. Obedience to God comes from a heart that has experienced God's amazing love and grace. And it comes from a life that has been radically transformed by God. So obeying all 613 commandments God gave to help the Israelites, yeah, they could obey every single one of them, but Jesus said, if you love God with everything and you love others that same way, you're not even going to have to think about all those commandments. You're going to have to spend the day with your checklist. Which ones did I fail today? Check, 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 check. You're just thinking, my life has been changed so much by God. Because he loves me so much, I want to love other people that way. I want to point people to him. And God says, the rest of those laws are just going to fall under that umbrella. Love. He is a God of love. And because of that love, he was willing to give his own son, Jesus Christ. That's the kind of sacrificial love that God has, the unconditional love. Even while we were still sinners, Jesus was willing to go to the cross and die for us. And he looked down from the cross and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But he still went through with it because of his great love. The Apostle Paul said that the love of Christ controls me. It compels me. 2 Corinthians 5.14. You can look that up later. But 
He said, this is the way I live my life, with God's love compelling me to live each day, to make each decision. So how does the scribe respond? Verse 32, you're right. You're right, teacher. You have answered truly. You've answered well. And then he repeats Jesus' answer. Love God, love your neighbor, and said, this is much more than burnt offerings and sacrifices. In other words, loving God and loving others is more important than all of these temple commandments. And isn't that what Jesus has been speaking about? He went into the temple and he cleansed it and said, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for everyone. Why are you taking advantage of people? Why have you made it a thoroughfare? Why are you selling things to people at higher prices than they need to be? It's not about the sacrifice. It's about love for God and love for other people. This scribe, this Pharisee gets it. He said, none of these things are as important as my heart, totally loving God and being changed by him. This is a radical idea for a Jewish leader, for a part of the Sanhedrin to say, you know what, Jesus? You're right. All of this stuff we've been doing, all of these extra rules we've burdened the people with, loving God was the most important thing, and we missed that. Jesus saw that this man really heard, and he understood what he had said. It's totally different from all of the other questions and tests. Every other group said, well, now what are we going to do? We've got to find a different way to trap him. We're going to find a different way to kill him. They were still mad about it. But this man says, you answered truly, you answered right. Jesus said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. So what was missing? What was missing? Warren Wearsby said this, if we love God, we will experience his love within and will express that love to others. Do not live by rules, but by relationships, a loving relationship to God that enables us to have a loving relationship with others. When we love God and we experience his love, we recognize his grace and his forgiveness, then we show that love to other people. It's not about a checklist. It's not about, am I good enough for God? And this is a huge parenting um, principle for us, right? We have a lot of rules for our kids, but in all of them, we should be saying, love God. This is why we treat others well. This is why we don't take our little brother's toys. This is why we clean up when mom and dad ask. It's all about loving God. It's not about keeping rules. We have to be careful not only with our kids, but as a church family, that we're not all about rules. Yes, there are things that God's word says to do, but what's our heart? Is our heart to follow him and to show that love to other people, to teach other people how to find a relationship with him through Jesus Christ? Jesus was basically calling this man to follow him. You understand these principles. You love your God. You're willing to love your neighbors. Now follow me. Isn't that what Jesus said to every other person that he met? Follow me. Repent of your sin. 
believe that I am the Messiah. I am who I say I am. Because loving God includes loving the one sent to bring salvation. That's the only way. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Following the first five books of the Bible, following those rules, will not make you right with God because that's just you and your own righteousness. It's only by believing in salvation through Jesus Christ. So now Jesus asks a final question, and we're going to wrap up with this. Verses 35 and 37. As Jesus taught in the temple, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls himself Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. After all of their questions, Jesus now turns around to the Sanhedrin and says, let me ask you a question. You've tried to stump me in all of these different ways. Let me, let me ask you the ultimate question. How can you, the scribes, say that the Messiah is the son of David? Where do you get that teaching? The Jews were expecting a Messiah to come who is a king of David part of his line, one of his descendants, that he would come and restore their earthly kingdom. Jesus quotes Psalm 110, where David was speaking, and Jesus says this, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells us something about the word. David wasn't just sharing his own ideas. The Holy Spirit was speaking through David when he wrote these words. This wasn't just David's opinion. So David calls himself Lord. Why would he then call the Messiah his Lord? We use the word Lord mostly in talking about Jesus, right? We don't talk about um, a Lord over us because we don't live in a vassal situation anymore, right? We're not lords and serfs and peasants, at least not here in the United States, Right? So why would a man refer to his great-great-great-great-grandson as his Lord? You only talk about your ancestors as greater than you. That's the Jewish culture. You would elevate those that came before you, and you talk about him as my son or a descendant. So why would David say, my Lord will say, I will put your enemies under my feet? So who is this Messiah? If David calls him my Lord, the Messiah is not just the son of David. He must be the son of God. He must be superior to David himself. Jesus proclaimed himself as the Messiah. And as he rode into Jerusalem on that donkey, riding in like a peaceful king, the people shouted out, Hosanna to the son of David. They recognized that he came from the house and the lineage of David. And Matthew made that so clear in his early beginning of his gospel. Here's how Jesus came to be. He came from the line of David on Joseph's side and on Mary's side. But he didn't ride in as a warrior king like David. 
He was a servant king. Jesus said, I came to serve, not to be served. He came as the son of God. And throughout his ministry, Jesus had been proclaiming, repent, recognize your sin, be right with God, and accept the Messiah as your savior. The passage ends with the people gladly hearing him. They believed, they accepted his teachings. And the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin had nothing to say. They didn't dare answer this question because they knew what it was doing. It was pointing to Jesus. He is the Messiah. You guys are missing the whole point. You're missing it. So our takeaways this morning, my question for you is, did you grow up going to church? How many of you grew up going to church as a kid? Grandma brought you, mom brought you, somebody, a neighbor brought you to church. How many of you had parents who you got to watch serve faithfully in church? The blessing of seeing people in your family serving. Have you read the Bible? Have you learned a lot of things about God? Have you heard the gospel preached clearly? You may be able to answer yes to one or maybe even all of those questions. But Jesus said, you may still just be close to the kingdom. You're not far now. You know all of this stuff. And it would be so terrible for you to stand before Jesus Christ as your judge and have him say, depart from me because I never knew you. You knew all about me, but I never knew you. You never became my daughter. You never became my son. You never trusted in me alone. Jesus' invitation to God's kingdom was a free gift. Jesus didn't say, give a lot of money to the temple. He didn't say, follow all the rules of the scribes and Pharisees. He said, follow me. Follow me. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, You've taken that final step. You've recognized that you're a sinner before a holy God. And the only way you can be forgiven is not by things you can do. The only way that you can be forgiven is accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior. Believing that he is the promised Messiah who died on the cross. His blood paid the penalty for my sins, for your sins, so that none of us could say, I got to heaven by my own hard work. Isn't that what we like to say as Americans? Right? Our Western culture is all about me just doing it, right? And that's what made a lot of great things happen in America. A lot of people said, I'm going to do this. Our family together is going to do this. We're going to pull ourselves up and we're going to just do this. Just do it. But God says, getting into heaven has nothing to do with you doing anything. It's a free gift from God, and it cost Jesus' life. It was free only for us to receive it, but it cost everything for Jesus. He gave up his life. He took our sins on himself and paid the penalty for us, something we couldn't do for ourselves. If you're ready to take that step today, whether you're watching online with us or you're here in the church building, I would love to talk to you. Come see me after the service. 
look for me online. You can find my contact information. And I would love to see you not be close, but in the kingdom. And the Bible tells us we can know that we are saved if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to go through life hoping and just wishing that it might happen. John said, I wrote these things so that you might know, that you might know. If you've already trusted Jesus as your Savior, do you love him? I think we would all say quick yes to that. Do you really love him? Do you love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, everything in your being? Do you love him more than everything? That's hard. That's hard because in me is still this love for myself. And God says, if you love me, you will follow my commandments. And that looks like loving other people. That's how we best show God's love to the world is by loving people around us. That love should consume us so that our waking thoughts and our sleeping thoughts are about him and loving others. As Brad Bigney says in Gospel Treason, what things are devastating for you? That's what you really love. And sometimes those are things that we love more than God, even though we would never say those words. If it's devastating for me to lose this or to feel like that thing is possibly going to be lost, that would just devastate me. It would ruin my life and my world. That thing is more important to you than God. And the Bible calls that an idol. Don't put anything ahead of me, God calls us to. So what are those things that we need to pray about and say, God, show me these things in my heart that I need to give up. You want what's best for me. You're going to give me all the good things I need, but some of these things are not good for me. Let me be willing to give those up for you. Will you ask God to show you who to love this week? Would you ask God to show you who to bring next week? Who's somebody that you love enough, that you care enough about, that you're willing to be uncomfortable and say, do you want to come to church with me? Can I pick you up at 945 and we'll go together? Who do you love that much? The greatest commandment is this, love God and love others. Please bow with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this day that we can know a little bit more about you. You revealed yourself to us through your son, Jesus Christ, who came and lived on earth, 100% God, but 100% man. And when asked the hard questions, Jesus always spoke the truth. What does it look to, like to really follow and obey you 100%? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbors Help us, Lord, to do that. Help us to put you and others ahead of ourselves. Help us to recognize your love for us and how great it is so that we would not only accept Jesus as our Savior, but that we would live a life that points others to you as well. May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth 
to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God the Father. I pray this in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.